0: Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, or by what name, did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old.
1: The panel has been discussing the spirituality and the forces of God, but I also believe that there are two forces that are here with us, that we do have our our God that we can depend on, but there's also a power of darkness that we do need to be aware of. And the choice Do you, do you believe that uh, that you can choose between one or the other? Most, most absolute definitely. Yeah. Now, given now, Marianne, uh, Williamson says in her book, Return to Love, that we're always walking in the direction of one or the other, that all of your actions in life, either you're moving toward the darkness or you're moving toward the light. Right. She calls it fear and love. There's this wonderful book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which talks, it, which, which is, anyway it's a gorilla talking but anyway uh, it talks about one of the points it brings out is one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live That's and right. that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world that there are millions of ways to be a then human being and, and many ways no but many paths no to what you call God that and her path amazing. might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light but her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be on that, I mean, it's, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, I There could be a couldn't person. possibly be just one way. What, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? you say there isn't only one way there, there is, is one there. way and only one way and that, that is through jesus be. there couldn't possibly be with because a you people say there in the there, world. there couldn't possibly be
0: because you yes. say
1: you intellectualize it and say there isn't if no. you don't believe that you're all buying into the lie do right. no you think you That's think wrong. that if that you if you are somewhere on the planet where if you're somewhere on the planet and you never hear the name of jesus you never hear the name of jesus but yet you live with a loving heart. You lived as Jesus would have had you to live. You lived for the same purpose that Jesus came to the planet to teach us all. But you are in some remote part of the earth and you never heard the name of Jesus. You cannot get to heaven, you think? And that is covered in the scriptures, too. The People are talked about Truly. that. God knows the heart. Does God care about your heart or God care about if you call his son Jesus? Well, you know, Oprah, God, Jesus cannot come back until that gospel is preached in the four corners of this earth,
2: so, you know, figure it out. Well, good morning, how we doing? Leave it to Oprah to frame our question this morning, right? Uh, what, what you just heard is the cultural orthodoxy of our day with the high priest or the pastor of the American spirituality, um, but it is everywhere, just this idea that how can you actually be so insane to claim that there is only one way, one path, that, that there is an exclusive way to God and and to name Jesus as that. Um, and I don't know about you, but I feel the tension of that. I feel like everywhere we go, it's kind of the framework that as we come together, it's fine for us to believe in Jesus, as long as we believe in Jesus in such a way that it is personal. In other words, we keep it to ourselves, and as, as much as we also celebrate and affirm everybody else's path is equal and is equally valid. And it's not enough to say, listen, we believe in tolerance. I believe in the First Amendment. I believe we should fight for the First Amendment. We should stand for every religious uh, group of people having the right in our culture to express their ideas and to speak and to have the religion of their choice. But our culture has told us over and over again that, the, that, that orthodoxy what we must believe is that you hold your religion, I hold mine. There are many paths to God. And and uh, to disagree with that is actually to be a heretic in our culture. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a uh, pastor um, who went to be with Jesus a few years ago, tells a story that when he was at college, uh, he had a professor who literally stood up and this, this it was a female professor, and she said uh, to, to, to the class that she thought that, that nobody who had any intellectual uh, depth and, and, and no intellectual person in our world at this time could believe that there's only one way to heaven and only one path to God and, and so R.C. Sproul tried to respond to this and she looked at him and she says are you telling me uh, that you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the only way? So, so the question for us this morning, those of you who know Jesus how would you answer that? My guess is for a lot of us we would do this. <laughs> right? Like, all right, how do I get out of this conversation? Uh, because it, it's a hard question to ask, or to answer. And here's why. All of a sudden, what follows up is that you're a bigot, you're narrow-minded, uh, you are, that, that is hate speech. You are hateful to not understand how other people see the world, how other people interact. And, and by the way, what about those Billions of people who live in places where they've never heard about Jesus. Are, are you telling me that those people are without God in the world because they've never heard the name of Jesus? How do we respond to that question? Well, our text this morning is uh, Peter and John answering that question and interacting with this. And, and what we have to wrestle with this morning, is Oprah right or is Peter right? Now, my guess is even in this room, even those among those who are watching online, that, that You believe in Jesus, but this question for you is troubling and may even be for you a a belief that you just have decided, I can't quite hold that. For many of us, what we have found is that in our culture, in our city, like here in our context of Eureka, in, in our larger world, that this may be the largest defeater belief to Christianity that is out there. It is fine to say, believe in Jesus, But don't evangelize and don't try to tell the world that there's only one way. Because when you say that, you are being hateful and bigoted to the world around you. And and so for for many of us, maybe we've just kind of said... I believe Jesus is way. it's kind of like what Oprah said, that we have my, I have my path, you have your path, that you know there is somewhere at the top of the mountain, and as we climb to the top of the mountain, you are on your journey, you are on your path, you're just kind of walking your way, but what will happen is what we will find is we will get to the top of the mountain, and when we get to the top of the mountain, we will find that all these different paths, all these different spiritualities, all these different belief systems will converge at the top, and we will find that we were all on the same journey to the same place, and the way you take your path, the way I, I, take, I take my path may be different. Um, and, and so maybe Oprah's right or maybe Peter's right. Um, th- this moment in our story happens in the context of a, uh, uh, a larger story that we've been hitting on the last couple of weeks in our, our story of Acts. Um, and so previously in Acts, we'll start, this is a story Uh, We're calling this series To Be Continued because on one level, Acts is a continuation of the story of Jesus. Luke Luke is the author. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, which we've read from this morning, And he wrote the book of Acts as a prequel and sequel. But both of these are about the ministry of Jesus. One is his ministry present with us in person as as a human being living on this earth. The second is his ministry to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, equipping the church to continue being the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus as we live out our faith in the world and the gospel is proclaimed. And so it's continued. But it's a continual story. So previously in Acts... Uh, Peter and John, just in the previous chapter, had been walking, he, they were walking into the temple, busiest hour of the day called the hour of prayer, thousands of people in the temple. There's a man who was there, uh, and that man, we're told, was lame from birth and known to everybody, like he was there every day. He had a group of people who carried him in and set him down. He would sit there and beg for alms, just ask people to throw a few bucks in. Peter and John walk in. And he looks, the, the crippled man, the lame man, who had never walked in his life, looked up at him and just said, hey, a few bucks, help me out, man. Here's, here's my hat, here's, here's my bucket, you know, throw a few dollars in. And Peter and John's response was to look at him and say, silver and gold, we have none, yet what we do have we will give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And he reached down and grabbed this man. This man had a moment of belief. He was raised up there in that moment. And next thing you know, this man who had been crippled from birth, that everybody knew him, saw him every day, is leaping and dancing and running through the temple praising Jesus, uh, 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 singing songs of praise to God in the name of Jesus, and is now hugging and grasping Peter and John. And last week we, we saw on Easter this... Beautiful sermon that Peter then preaches with this man hovering, the, the, the shadow of this man over him. I told you two weeks ago that, this, that these two chapters, chapters three and four, the man is always there. He is always in the shadows. His shadow is hovering over the whole story. And we saw that again here. We'll get to that in a minute that this man is this, just this evidence. This is not like you know a Benny Hinn conference where they bring somebody in a wheelchair on stage and nobody's ever seen this person before, but he lays his hand. Next thing you know, the guy's up and dancing around. We don't know if that's real or not. In this case, this was a man that people had passed for years upon years upon years. Every time in the temple, they knew he was carried in. This guy is not faking it. He's not making it up, and he is now present in the temple. And so Peter and John are preaching, and, or Peter is preaching with John at his side. And as he preaches, Acts 3.16, he says this, And his name, the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this, this man strong whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. He's saying, listen, it was Jesus, as he proclaims to the crowd, that healed this man. And faith in Jesus has made him and an, the translators here say perfect health. It's a Greek word that means that Jesus has made him whole. That, that, that he has been rescued, redeemed. He has been made whole by Jesus. And in the midst of the sermon, he offers to this crowd of people, of thousands of people, if they will believe in Jesus as their rescuer, as their Messiah, they too can have redemption and wholeness and beauty. Now, as they're preaching this, What happens as we start chapter four is the game changes a little bit. First of all, we're told uh, in verse three, I'm sorry, verse four, that many people believe. So there's a, a, like, already the church had gone from 120 people on day one of Christianity to 3,120 on the very first day of Christianity. And now we're told many believe on this day, and the church now numbers 5,000 men. It's counting heads of households. In other words, we go from 3,120 people to 5,000 households where where, where the the, the leader of the home, the spiritual leader at home, is now trusting in Jesus. Now, in counting in this way, we've got to assume that the church is now 10, 15,000 strong. The, The gospel is exploding in Jerusalem, it is making news, lives are being transformed. People are turning from their religious past to trusting in Christ. And the church has been birthed out of this. And the church is now meeting in homes, coming to the temple, that the gospel is being proclaimed. But the the ministry of the gospel is being demonstrated through the church, and and it is growing. But in verses 1 to 3, what we see happens is that Peter and John are going to get in a little bit of trouble now. Verse 1. And they were speaking in the people... And the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So while the church explodes, we see this first moment of what is going to be persecution, that is going to grow in acts, the the suffering and the hardship. As they are preaching, literally as they are continuing to proclaim and invite people to Christ, here comes this group of people that are led by the captain of the guard. This is kind of the, uh, uh, the guy who's, you know, it, it, he's the guy who's always got, you know, the little earpiece and microphone on in church, and, you know, he's, he's in the back, and he's packing, you know. If anything goes bad in church, we're going to take that guy down, right? Uh, we're going to make sure that everybody's safe. They're going to protect. That guy who's kind of the, the, the head police officer or head security guard, Along with the Sadducees, this is kind of the the political, uh, the social political group that has power in Jerusalem. And some of the priests, they come up on Peter and John. they, They bind them, they take them away, and they throw them in prison. And now Peter and John spend the night in jail for preaching Christ. And so what happens in the story, here's kind of the flow of this story. The first several verses up through uh, verse 4, tell us about the arrest, okay? Verses 5 through 7, we have the trial. Annas, who is the high priest, along with several of his sons, (coughs) along with the entire council. We see in one of the verses here, it names the council as the Sanhedrin. This is a, a, a council of 70 rulers, that rule in Jerusalem, they oversee the religious life of Israel, they are looked at as the Jewish Supreme Court. Annas, at one point in time, served as the high priest. Now the text tells us he's the high priest. And that all these scholars are like, well see here's Luke, doesn't know what he's talking about. But the truth of the matter is Luke does know. Because what happened is Annas was the high priest, but in 15 AD, so about 20 years before this event, he was removed from office by a Roman ruler who didn't like his politics, didn't like his approach, didn't like that he was preaching Yahweh as the only God and this sort of thing. But he was replaced by a line of his sons who were named in the passage. The people in, in Jerusalem still looked to him as the main guy. And, and so, you have what you have here is, this is not some minor moment. Peter and John are in front of, like, whatever's going on, it is so significant that they are in front of the equivalent of the Pope and the College of Cardinals? Like, like what's it take to assemble that? Or, or they are not, they're not taken to some local judge. They are thrown immediately in front of the Supreme Court. Like, it's, it's on. It's, it's serious, right? Like, like, this is not just some side judge who's gonna find out what should we do. They are now pro, like, like being held in front of of this group of people who represent the rulership, the leadership in all of Israel. And they ask a simple question. By whose name and what power did you heal this guy? They're bring, being brought for, for in front of this group of people saying, by whose name, what power? Now, this is like this question is not out of a vacuum. These are the people who have absolute control and authority given by the Roman government And they believe by the Jewish law, they're the ones who have absolute authority and right. And there's a humorous point that you got to see here. They're looking at them and going, hey, wait a minute, man. You healed a guy in the temple, and you didn't ask us first. We're we're not cool with that. Like, what gives you the right to walk into our temple and heal a guy? And then start talking about this dude, Jesus. By whose name and whose power are you doing this? Now, the next several verses, we're going to come back to this, but I want, I want you to see kind of the outcome of this before we get to the actual part of the text that I really want us to dig into is that they, Peter responds to them uh, eloquently and passionately in both humility and with boldness and conviction They hear what Peter has to say and what they do is they pull back in the moment and they begin to discuss what are we going to do. And they got themselves a pickle. They got themselves a major problem. Because one of these moments where they're like, what we'd really like to do is off these two guys. But there's that dude. Remember the shadow? There's that that guy and, and we can't deny what happened. On top of that, There's something crazy going on in the temple today Like the whole place is burst into praise and worship And it's continuing, day two Man, they're still dancing and shouting The guy's still around, they still can't believe it More people have showed up to the temple today to see this dude There is singing and celebration We're afraid that if we do something weird with these guys today The crowd might see that as a problem They they got themselves a pickle Uh, and, And so they come out and they warn Peter and John not to speak anymore. And this is where Peter responds with what he says. And, and then they come back and they, there is a phrase and I want you to see it. I love this. We, we, we need to hear this this morning. It's in verse, uh, verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what I want. I I like to thump my chest and act like I'm real smart. I'm not. I I like to be recognized in in the culture, in the academy, and uh, among people who think I have all this power. I don't. What I hope will happen for you and me and I hope will happen for us is they will look at us and go, man, they're just common folk. There's nothing special about them. They're just ordinary people, but they are astonished and they take note that we have been with Jesus. Isn't that a good goal? That should be our hope as well. And they, it also says then in verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And when they commanded them to leave the council, they, or they commanded them to leave and they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For there's a notable sign that has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. Now, now what ought to be going on right now, like what we ought to see is they go, man, that guy's alive. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. We sent Jesus, we, like this is the Sanhedrin that sent Jesus to the cross. Caiaphas is named in this text. Caiaphas was the judge who oversaw the trial of Jesus. We sent Jesus to the cross. Maybe we missed it. Maybe there's something here. But it's, it's human nature To say, man, I see the world rightly. I have this all figured out. They have to be wrong. We are not giving up our power. We are not giving up our authority. We have a place of prestige and honor. And so they are in a pickle but what they do is they turn this and say, man, we have to let them go. So they come and they warn them. Don't Talk about Jesus. Don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Verse 20, Peter answers, for we cannot, but I'm sorry, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. That is tongue in cheek. Like they go, hey, if it's, if it's right to listen to God or you, like, you decide which is more important. Should we listen to God? Should we listen to you? Now, the reason that's tongue is cheek is that, it, that in their mind, they think listening to them is listening to God. But they, they say, you know, it's up to you. But here's what we have to do. We have to go proclaim and, and give testimony to bear witness to the things that we have seen and heard. We know that Christ is alive. We saw him alive. We have to testify of this. And said, so verse 23 says, and when they had... Further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man whom this sign of healing performed was more than 40 years old. But it's what Peter said to them in the midst of this that I I want to capture our attention for the most part today. See the beauty of the story. See this man hovering. Part of our testimony is the fact that in this room are people who were once lost, but now they are found. They were once blind, but now they see. That people who have been rescued by Christ out of brokenness and hardship, whose sins had mounted, who were deeply sick, sick and, and broken, and in the midst of this, they have found Christ, that He has been their redemption. Is that you? All right, that, is that you? We're those people, like we are the man. And nobody can look at us and go, man, it's not real. But in the midst of this, there is a claim that Peter makes in this sermon that we need to hear and that we need to wrestle with As He gives one of the clearest declarations of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. But this is a, 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 a word from Peter that is echoed all through the Bible. The Bible never points to Yahweh, the one true and living God, as one path of many. Rather, we have a God who has revealed himself, made himself known, and is inviting all people to himself. And so in verse, verse uh, uh, 10, verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse eight through 12, Peter says this, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed let it be known that to let it be known to all of you that all, and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. No other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the door. Anyone who comes through me will live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by way of me. And so here we are. First of all, if we are followers of Jesus, having to wrestle with this in our culture. And second, if you're you're trying to figure this thing out, one of the things that may for you be holding you up is this tension that you have that says, man, it's hard for me to embrace a group of people who are so arrogant as to claim that they are the only ones with the truth and that their religion is the only way. And so watch this. If you're here today and you feel like, man, I, I feel like it's arrogant to say that your religion is the only way, are you ready? I agree with you. Now, I don't overhear what I just said. I am now going to try to frame an argument that says we must believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. We, we can't give this up because the minute we give this up, we lose the whole gospel. We got nothing else to give. If Jesus is just one way of many, then what we have is one religion of many, and the outcome is just one salvation of many. But if Christ, the name of Jesus, is the only way, what we have is the only hope. It is the most inclusive, exclusive statement in all of Scripture. It is for all people. And we need to be consistent in offering this and hear this message so that it also propels us to our neighbors, to our city, to our world. In, in the book of, of uh, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, there's this crazy passage in Jeremiah 2 where God frames the problem in our humanity very well through the pen of Jeremiah where he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. In other words, when you understand this, it should shock you and leave you utterly desolate. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of, of living waters and have hewn cisterns out for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water, this is the central problem for you and me it 's a central problem for oprah it 's a simple problem for the, the central problem for our neighbors. It is this: that there is a fountain of living water that flows from the throne of God. That water is available to us. but what we have done is we have looked at the fountain of living waters and went. Mm, Nah, I'm good. And what we've done is instead of running to the fountain, that that is an act of humility and and trusting in something other than myself, what I do is I hew out a cistern for myself. I I make myself a little basin. Uh, I I pour some concrete in it. I I, I fill it so that it will hold water. Uh, I I make it so that, like, I don't need somebody else to give me water. I'm going to create my own thing. But, the problem is I can't create water. And, and more than that, what happens is this fountain, this, 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 this cistern, this well, this, this hole in the ground that I filled with concrete now is cracked and it is empty. And it, it, like any water that actually flows into it flows right through it. And, and it just doesn't hold water. And I'm in the bottom of this thing going, my well, my cistern, I believe in this. This is what I stand for. Meanwhile, we live in a humanity that is parched. That, that is thirsty, that can't find water, and there is a fountain right there. And, and this is the problem, that, that any approach to God, any religion, is the hewing out of a cistern. And here is the true and living God, who is the fountain, the fountain, the never-ending supply of living water. And we don't come to him. Listen, let me be honest with you. Every religion, and I, here I'm going to include Christianity. you got to hang with me. you got to hear me. Don't give up yet. Oprah is right. Every religion, every path, every journey up that mountain ends up at the same place. Christianity as a religion is just another path. It is a path of building a broken cistern that never had water to begin with. And any water that comes anywhere near it just seeps through it and ends up empty. And we are thirsty, broken. What we're going to find at that top of the mountain is that we're on a mountain that is nothing, that brokenness that cannot save us. You're like, wait a minute, I thought Christianity is what saves us. Hold on. You've got to stay with me because I'm making a point here. That at every moment in history, there is a cultural orthodoxy then that says this is what you must believe. At this moment in the Bible, that cultural orthodoxy in Jerusalem is the broken cistern of here's the law. We must keep the law. If we keep the law, our good works, our good, good efforts, our, our moral lives, our, our, our rule keeping is what will fill us. It's what will make us acceptable to God. It's what will save us. And and Peter and John confront them to say, broken cistern. Broken cistern. Can't hold water. You're parched. You don't even know it. Now you need to realize, these cats they're talking to are all pro. They're the all-stars. They are the scholars and intellectuals, but man, they are the best rule keepers in Israel. That anybody saw them, they would go, "Man, these, <laughs> we should look up to these men. They are the most powerful, but also the most holy people in our culture." And and Peter, these uneducated ordinary men, say, "Broken sister." You, you go through history, and even in the history of Christianity, there are all kinds of moments where the the, the offer has come to us, and we will teach you how to live your life, and if you will just. Do the sacraments, if you will just be a good person, whatever that looks like. But but what happens over time, Jesus is just kind of a side element in a self-salvation experiment. And you end up with religious people with a broken cistern, and the fountain is right there, and they just can't see it. Our culture, the cultural orthodoxy, is that there is no such thing as truth. You believe what you want to, and there are tons of Christians around the world who are more than willing to embrace this, to try to pull the, what is the court, cultural orthodoxy, because, man, we don't want to offend people with Jesus. We don't want people to be turned off by the fact that we do believe something uh, in a way that it, it shapes us and we want the world to know. And there are churches all over America this morning who will stand up and preach a broken cistern in, in place of the fountain. And for many of us, we buy into this cultural narrative, thinking if I am cruel, I will be tolerant. But, but pay attention to this. Every worldview is exclusive. Every worldview. Don't, don't kid yourself. Every worldview has a form of salvation they have defined and has an exclusive claim in that. We live in this crazy time where the cultural narrative, the cultural, like the whole point of our world around us, the, the orthodoxy of our world is what I've been telling you, what Oprah proclaimed, that there's not just one path to God. There's not just one journey. There's all spiritualities. You go on your path. I will go on mine. I loved how Oprah over the years kept bringing more and more spiritual leaders. She would sit at a table. I watched it multiple times. She would sit at a table with an imam, uh, with a, some kind of religious, uh, a Christian pastor per se, uh, a cleric from uh, the, the Jewish faith, and, and she always had these guys who were these spiritualists, right? And they would sit at this table, and they would talk about their own faith, but as they talked about their own faith, they ultimately denied, each one denied the central tenets of their own faith. Because I don't care where you go. I don't care if you go to Hinduism or Buddhism, uh, th- these religions that are so-called tolerant, You need to read right now that these tolerant religions of the East, which are being pushed to us as tolerant worldviews and religions, are killing Christians in mass. But I don't care where you go. What happens is that, that these world religions, every single one of them have exclusive truth claims. They believe that their way is the right way. And so here comes around our postmodern moment, right? And what they say is you shouldn't believe that with all your heart. You shouldn't hold, like you must be, Inclusive, you must make sure that you agree that everybody has their own journey and path. You must not evangelize, you must not hold anything. And watch this. What do they do with it? They say, and if you don't, we're gonna cancel you. You hear that? They have a version of our culture, has a version of salvation that is ultimate inclusivity, and they now have an orthodoxy where if you don't agree with the orthodox, in the name of inclusion, they are massively exclusive. And this has run to the very ends of everything in our culture. And so we know that if you stand up and say, Jesus is the only way, you were canceled, Homer Simpson, I, I, I can't say that, I will get in trouble at work and all that kind of stuff. How do we navigate this? And, and here's Peter and Paul, or Peter and John, Who've been in prison overnight, who know that what they say may cost them their lives, and they are clear. They're salvation and no one else. Why would they make that claim And what do we need to hear this morning? And there's, there's three kind of ideas from the text that I want to hit as we walk through this. Um, th- three points I want to make about why we must hold to the exclusivity of Jesus. Why Jesus alone is that fountain. Jesus alone is the one who brings refreshment and drink into our souls. Jesus the one who is alone is the one who satisfies. Why we must hold it, why we must proclaim it, why we must lovingly stand in our culture for Christ as the only hope for all humanity. And why we must be passionate about world evangelization. In other words, we need to be all in on doing all we can gospel to the nations and maybe some of us need to be training our children grandchildren thinking ourselves about what it might look like to go rather than stay and and so here's what what peter says this from his his message to the sanhedrin i want three points that, that tell us remind us why we have to hold to this and first of all jesus is the only one who can cure my illness He's the only one who can cure my illness. What, what we start the story with, don't forget, we start a story with a lame man, a man who was crippled from birth, a man who had never walked. And, and what this man did in his moment in chapter 3 is what the whole world does. He is there, and his real problem is deep and unsolvable. But he is determined that he, he is going to address a smaller problem, which he can solve. And so here's this man who is sitting there and he is begging for money because he has decided his life works. His life will make sense if he can just get people to throw a few boxes away and he can then go about his way and have money for the day. And, and what we know, like, I don't know if Jerusalem was this way, but I do know this that in our culture, those people often make a lot of money. In fact, there was an old, like, it's been like eight or 10 years ago uh, when one of the NBC news uh, anchors went to Washington, D.C., and went to um, uh, New York City and hung out in the subway with a basket in front of them. And if I remember that right, and, and that day's money, uh, they, they did it for like two or three days in both places, and then they prorated what would it look like to do this five days a week as a job. They, he would have earned over $100,000 a year. Just, just panhandling, right? And here's this guy, but, but what he's doing is he's looking at his life going, man, if I can just get through this, uh, if I can just get enough money, if I can, I can you know, make it work, I, I, can, I can keep my life going, I can kind of rescue myself. And, and what happens in our understanding of our humanity is that we feel the weight of the deep brokenness that is within us but what we do is mask this and we go on our own self-salvation experiment. We look at our sin and our failures and our struggle and our brokenness and we come up with a system and a path where I can save me, I can rescue me, I can solve my problem. The, the, the issue though is that as we do this, uh, as we go through this in our lives and as our neighbors are doing this, what they do does not work, it does not save, it does not heal. It may leave them with a few bucks in their pocket. It may leave them with a sense of satisfaction in moments. But the deep crippling, the deep brokenness does not go away. Our problem is way deeper than any of us in this room are willing to recognize. And the hard part of our message is that we must keep reminding them that crippled people panhandling and finding all their hope in their own efforts is, is never gonna work. What, what that man needed was somebody who came and identified the deeper problem to him and gave him a solution, not for paying for his dinner that night, but for being crippled in the first place, right? That's what, that's what he really needed. He had come to the point where he, had just accepted that and, and began to focus. the focus of his life was on a completely different problem. Here we are and our brokenness, our sinfulness, our inability and unwillingness to change is so deep and we don't see it. And we have lived a culture. Our culture, like this whole this whole orthodoxy I've just said, is this that basically we are good people. And if we can just get a little bit of help, we can make it through. We, we like like this is what is told that I am on my own journey, finding my own identity, making my own way, and I'm basically good. How dare you ever tell me anything I do is not good. I'm a basically good person. And if you, like, there's places where I might need a little bit of help. So I have a religion. God is giving me a little push, helping me out. I'm on my way. If I, I'm a, I'm a basically a good person. If I just get a little bit of help, I can make it through this life. Yet what we are is we are crippled. Actually, the Bible frames it even worse. We think we're sick people who just need a little help. And so the imagery I used to have is, you know, we're like people out at sea, and we're drifting in the ocean, and and what we need is somebody show up with the boat and throw a life preserver, and then I can decide whether or not to take the life preserver of Jesus or just keep swimming on my own. That is not the way the Bible frames our humanity. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, listen to this. Paul writing says, and you were Dead. In your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear that? Do you hear the number of times we all were and they all are? There's a universality. He says, we're dead like, like, we're not sick and need of help. We're dead men. We're not bobbing in the open ocean hoping somebody will throw us a life preserver. We, we have drowned on the bottom, and the only way somebody can fix us is to do something that can't be done. Dead people don't come alive. They are dead. What we need is somebody who will shape us and call us to life. And he says, we were following the prince of the power of the air. That like, like our path, we're not good people. We were people who have fixed our lives on living for me, self centered. Our self centeredness is a disease that runs deep. We can't overcome it. And, and we are following the desires of our body and the mind. We are by nature children of wrath. We are in front of God, guilty and deserving his justice. The, the, the biblical terms is that we are dead. And depraved. The fix for this cannot be accomplished with a self salvation experiment. And every religion, and I keep including Christianity because you got to stay with me. I got a point that I'm going to make. And every religion is going to give you a way to save yourself. So so here we are, walking through this journey with the self salvation experiment. And, and what the scriptures are saying is we are approaching the world thinking, I'm a pretty good person, I just need a little help. And the scriptures tell us that you and I are dead and depraved, but not just us, our neighbors, the people around us. We have a sickness and a brokenness that cannot be addressed. And here's what, what Peter and John are looking at them. He, that Peter and John are looking at them saying, man, fellas, religious leaders, until you recognize Jesus, Until you find him, you can't be healed. This man is healed not by going to some motivational speaker who stood over him and said, listen, you can do it. I know you can. Let me give you five principles on how to walk again. Let me give you three truths that if you believe them, you will get yourself out of this moment. They needed somebody in the name of Jesus to grab him by the hand and say, buddy, Jesus is for you. He can heal you. Get up and walk, right? See, see, only Jesus can actually deal with this problem. It is only the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that actually goes to the root of our human condition. And Jesus alone can help us. Jesus alone can heal us. The second thing we see from the text is Jesus alone is, uh, alone is the one who can bear the weight of our lives. Now later, I'm going to post this out. I'm not going to do it today. It's in my notes, but I'm going to post out a little bit later a way to see the things that we build our lives on. But what happens in our journey is this. What happens in our journey is this that, that we build our life on something. We find something in our life and we place it kind of at the core of who we are. It, the Bible calls this idolatry. This is at the root of our sin. So, so we might build our lives on financial resources. We might build our lives on, on power and fame. We might build our lives on top of having a good family and a good reputation in the community. There are all kinds of things that we build our lives on. But what we find from Scripture is that these are broken cisterns. They are are cornerstones that can't bear the weight of our lives. And there's this guy in the Bible named Solomon who writes a book that is called Ecclesiastes. It's an amazing book, it's a book of philosophy, a book of thought, I love Ecclesiastes, but here's the central argument in Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who is the richest, most powerful man in the world said here's my life journey. What I did is I spent my life building my whole life on all these things. I built it on power, I built it on fame, I built it on riches, I built it on women. The dude had 1,000 wives and 700 living girlfriends. I, I built my identity and my sense of hope on, on the ability to control people. I, I, I built it on accomplishments. I built more towers and more buildings. He built it on, on uh, political power. His army conquered more than anybody in, in his era. He was the closest thing to the world ruler of his moment. And here's what he says. All those things I built my life upon couldn't hold the weight of my life. He he uses a word that is translated vanity. It was all worthless. The the word is actually an interesting word in the original language Hebrew. It's the word hebel, which means it's a vapor. I go out on a cold day and I, I exhale. And that which is there for a moment just dissipates and is gone. And he says, all these things, and he looks at us, he says, "I did it bigger, better, stronger, I had more money, more power, more women, more uh, whatever you are pursuing, whatever you're building, building your life upon, I built my life at some point in time on that. This is what I found it was vanity, it was worthless. And what we do is we come along and we are pulled in the direction of man, if I just had this or if I could just just experience this, if you know if I just could could get enough money, if I could just find a boyfriend or girlfriend, if I could just, you know, get married, if I could just uh, get this job, if I could just feel like I was important, if I just, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we do all, if I could just make this sports team, I mean, all sorts of things. What we do is we build our lives on that and it cannot bear to wait. And here's what Peter and John say to them in this moment. Look at it again in verse, verse, uh, uh, verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. It's amazing imagery in the scripture, this this cornerstone. Here's the picture. You have this person who's building. This is a reference to the kingdom of God, but it's also helpful for us in looking at our own lives. Here's this idea of this, this building. We have an architect who's designed the building. We're ready to build it. And there's this one stone. This stone seems broken. It seems worthless. It seems unusable. And so... We're, you know everybody's looking for the cornerstone, the capstone, the stone of the corner is what it is. And, and in ancient buildings, you had to find the right stone because that cornerstone did two things. It set the sight lines for the building. So every other stone that was laid was laid based on the direction that was set by the cornerstone and it bore the weight of the whole thing. And, and so, so there's this one stone and it's worthless it doesn't feel like it has any value and they just they don't even hold on to it to build into the building they just throw it off to the side and here comes God the master builder who goes and picks up that stone and lays it at the corner and says this stone you have rejected by the way we all apart from Christ have rejected this God has made him the stone of the corner the the foundation stone for everything in other words, his kingdom is built on top of bearing the weight. This stone will bear the weight of the kingdom. This stone also sets all the sight lines for the way this thing will be built. But here, you and I, we, we, have kept, we keep building our lives on something that can't endure, that can't uh, help us, that can't protect us, that can't sustain the weight of our lives. And so we wonder why our lives are crumbling. And here is Christ, the cornerstone. He is the only one who can bear our weight. He is only, listen, when we offer Jesus and Jesus alone, he's the only one who can bear the weight of the lives of our neighbors, who can give them something worth living for, and who can give them something to live towards. And the third thing we see is that Jesus is the only one who can stick the landing. He's the only one who can stick the landing, who can, who can stick the dismount. Uh, what, what happens is we're all moving towards our idea of God, towards our idea of, of redemption, and there is an end to the story. I, I cannot watch. Like, like, let me get some amens here in a minute. I cannot watch a movie where they kill the dog. I, I don't care what the movie is, okay? Oh Yeller, Where the Red Fern Grows, those movies are dead to me. Turner and Hooch, Nope. I don't care how they t- try to sweeten it in the end, if you're familiar with Turner and Hooch, they kill the dog in the end, saves the life of the main character, but the dog is dead. And even though that dog had puppies that look kinda like it and are just as annoying, the dog you loved, it's, like, it's dead. I just can't take that. It, it wears me out, I just I wanna curl up in a ball, and I'm ridiculous anyway, my kids make fun of me because I cry at everything. It's a sad state to be an adult with teenage kids in a house who every time you, you're having this moment in a movie, they are all staring at you. So no, I'm not watching one of these movies. And, and uh, what happens is the, the, the death of the dog is just so final. Here we are, we have to answer this question. We have to deal with the reality that death is final. And, and here's the Sadducees, one of the groups in this room. They don't believe in the resurrection. They just believe that, you know, here's what happens is when you get to the story, you just go into some kind of spiritual afterlife. They express the worldview that that is held by almost every major religion. In other words, everybody's got to have an answer to what happens at that last moment. If you're purely secular, your your answer is uh, that um, that last moment is your last moment. You're just warm food. If you go to Hinduism, Hinduism says we're going to recycle you. You have this disembodied existence. You come back again as something else. Hopefully it's not as a guinea pig, right? Or if you're Buddhist, your goal is to be absorbed, to lose your own personal identity and be absorbed into the eternal, this idea of the eternal Uh, divine that you lose your consciousness your identity and are observed like a river flows into the ocean uh if you are in a lot of religions they will tell you that you go to heaven when you die that there is the death and and that's it but then you go into this cosmic space where maybe we're playing harps or maybe we're you know hanging out and you know i don't know just doing all kinds of things but there's this cosmic eternal heaven and you say well that's what christianity believes not quite in fact, there is something in this text that is beautiful, uh, that, is, that is glorious. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think that, that, that you're outside the tomb of Lazarus. How would world religions address that moment? So here's this tomb. There's a dude inside this tomb. He's dead. Mary and Martha are crying. Mary and Martha are struggling. They don't know what to do at this moment. Jesus shows up there, kind of like if you'd have shown up a few days ago, you could have healed him, but now he stinks. And secularism looks at him and says, that's it. Don't cry. This is the way life is. Buddhism, or uh, uh, Hinduism says he'll come back. Buddhism says, oh, he's being absorbed in the cosmic consciousness of the universe. Uh, Islam says, hey, if he was good at this, he gets a whole bunch of women. But what does Jesus say? Jesus walks up to the tomb and speaking to them, he looks at the tomb and he says this. He looks at Mary. Uh, Martha said to him, John 11, I know that they will rise and the resurrection and the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He doesn't say, listen, I come with the path of the resurrection. He says, I am. And the resurrection. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens in our text this morning. Look again, real quick. uh, look again at verse 2. It says, greatly annoyed because they were the, the, the religious leaders arrested Peter and John. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I've read that for years, thinking here's what it said. They were greatly annoyed because they were proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. But that's not quite what they were teaching. They were teaching that because they were standing in front of the people saying, because Jesus rose, if you trusted him, so will you. It is a promise more than it is a historical citation here. They're saying, listen, here's the the hope that you have in Christ. It's the hope that nobody else has. It is resurrection. Here's why that matters, Christian. It matters because the salvation that is offered to you in the name of Jesus, there's no other way, is the salvation of all of you. We are not disembodied forever and, and just in like some spiritual state, like Plato said. We are resurrected because Christ. Rose from the dead We too will be What we do is when we look at Lazarus' tomb We say what happened Like that day is just a picture One day Jesus is going to return First Thessalonians says He will with, a, with the voice of the archangel And the trumpet of God He will say I am the resurrection and life Come on let's go get out Only Jesus offers this How do we know this is the only way Because only Jesus went to the grave And came back That's it Here's what happens is that, that if we start giving in and saying, man, we don't believe in the exclusivity of Christ, we lose it all. We lose the only G- the Jesus who's the only one who can heal. We're looking at our neighbors saying, man, just be okay in your state. We are looking at our neighbors and friends saying, listen, he's the only one who can give you something to build your life on that has any meaning and value that can hold the weight of your life. We're looking at our neighbors and friends and saying, listen, he's the only one who makes the end of life make sense. What happens here is that every religious system in the world has three basic premises. Premise number one, there is a God. All kinds of different views of God, but there is a God. They don't agree on who God is like, but that's a different issue. There is a God. Religious premise number two is that I am here, there is me. And religious premise number three is that there is something wrong that has created a gap. I don't care where you go, those three truths are, are held. Okay? And here's what happens in the context of, of the story. Is that anywhere you go and you go to somebody who's giving you a religious worldview, they, they're gonna tell you there is a God, they'll, they'll define that God for you. There is us, here I am. There is a problem and here is their message. Come to us and we'll help you build the bridge. We will teach you the path, the journey you need to go on to build the bridge. There is a God, there is me, there is a problem. We will teach you. And so you come to to Judaism in the Bible, and they're like, hey, there is a God, there is us. We deserve his justice, but if you keep the law, we give you the Ten Commandments of the law. You can build a path. You go to Islam, there is a God, there is me. The God is the monotheistic God of the Bible, but he is not the same God that we worship. And and, uh, Islam says, we're going to give you this five-fold path. Or the five core beliefs that include prayer, uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, those sorts of things. Come to Hinduism, their definition of God, their definition of the problem is a little bit, but they're going to give you the eightfold path of Hinduism. You come to Christianity, and a lot of times in Christianity I I heard growing up was, there is a God, there is me, there is a gap. And yes, Jesus did something for that, but you be a good person, pray your prayers, get baptized in a Baptist church, uh, don't date the wrong girls here's the path, here's the journey. This is what Christianity becomes. It becomes another path. And if what we're offering people is another path to get to God, then, then we're no better than anybody else. But it's not what we have to author. This is the gospel message. This is why Christ is exclusive. This is why what Peter is saying is important. This is what I want you to close, the, the idea I want you to hear at the close today. There is a God. He is pure, perfect, and holy. He is the one true and living God who has made himself known in the scriptures. And Jesus is that God. There is me, and I am over here, and I exist. But there is a problem. I am dead, depraved, sinful, unwilling, and unable to save myself. And here's what Christianity, Christianity looks at every one of us and says, and there is nothing you can do about that. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, but that's not all the story, right? When Christianity says there is no bridge you can build, there is no path, we're, we're hopeless at that point. And here's what the gospel says. That the bridge is not built on my side, it is built on God's side. That the story of the gospel, the reason Jesus is the only solution is that God came to us. There's no other name because Christianity is the only thing that offers Salvation, not in what I do, building my own path. Christianity says the gospel is this, that God could have left us in that state. Jesus came to me. Jesus offered himself. Jesus died at a cross and rose again. He is the only way because it's not a path I build. It's just a a person I trust. God did not come to give us a a spirituality, a journey, a religious system. He came to give us himself. And we're only saved there. Our neighbors are only saved there. It is why we must go to the the three plus billion people on planet earth who've never ever heard the name of Jesus. We have to find ways in our gospel to get there and to preach Christ to them. And today, it is just a call. We need to hold on to this. I've gone way over time, and I'm sorry about that. I'm done. Promise I'm getting off here. But man, this is such an important question because we want to Homer Simpson it, don't we? That image is the solution to it. If they look at you and say, how dare you say your religion is the correct one? You need to make sure you say, I'm not saying that Christianity is a lousy religion. I'm telling you that the God who we're trying to find came here and has made himself known and you can know him, not on a religious path, but by looking to Jesus. Lord, we praise you today for what you said, how Peter and John said this, help us today, help us Lord to know the truth of this beautiful story in this gospel. And may we live in the power of that. In your name I pray, amen.